Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for giving us a day to worship you in the most wonderfully edifying way. For the word, as it describes itself, washes over each of us, renewing our sense of vigor and purpose. May each of us be encouraged by each other's faith as this magnificent thing transpires in this local assembly that you've given us. We pray, Father, that our sense of destiny is something that we cling to, regardless of the trials we might be facing as individuals and as a church. We pray for the weak especially, that they may be encouraged, knowing how much you love them. We pray also for those still lost in this world, that they may come to know you, as Jesus said in John 14:6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. And may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message title is The Gospel, Salvation, and Sanctification. This past week, we began with a consistent theme. uh, And it's sort of a culmination of all the thoughts that the Spirit's given us on the topic of sanctification, which really is, for lack of a better term, a progressive thing, an experientially wrought thing. So we began with this consistent theme, and interestingly enough, as a sidebar, it was also evident at the men's conference too, that top of mind for all of us has been sanctification, and frankly what it means, or even looks like, to ourselves, specifically at the conference, you know, as men, but generally, what does sanctification look like? to ourselves? What does it look like to be ourselves and be sanctified simultaneously? In other words, we're not trying to be religious. We're not trying to be like the next man or like the next woman. We're finding who we are as individuals in Christ. And that came up as well at the conference, and that's certainly been something that has been resonating from the pulpit now for months, learning to be ourselves and be sanctified. At the end of the day, we must have faith and trust in the process. When we follow Jesus Christ with a sincere heart, He will reveal all things to us at the proper time. When we follow Him, He will reveal all things to us at the proper time. And it's a learning curve. More practically stated, the Bible will give us commands, and the Lord will provide us with grace to meet those commands. That's what sanctification looks like. We are set apart. His commands help us in accomplishing that thing in our lives. 
But here's one baseline principle that I've taught for years now, is that grace precedes fruit. Grace precedes fruit. God will always afford a believer the appropriate grace to accomplish a command. This means that every command in the Bible is placed upon man in the presence and sufficiency of grace, Allah, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And we'll get to that. Again, remember this. Grace always precedes fruit. So God's not going to make a command on your life unless He's provided the grace for it in the first place. The Holy Spirit's not going to convict you the same way before you're ready to take on, let's say, a command that you might have read years ago until you have the ability to do it, because God's interested in bringing glory to Himself. So grace always precedes fruit. God will always afford a believer the appropriate grace to accomplish a command. This means that every command in the Bible is placed upon man in the presence and sufficiency of grace. We know by Scripture that Paul was given the stewardship of grace. Ephesians 3.2 says that. And God used Paul in such a way as a living example of what humility and faith looks like in a human being. Why do you think he intimate so many things to us in the Bible? It's that he's an example. He's still alive, as Scripture says. Faith still lives on. His faith is still evident. It still lives on. So he's still alive, so to speak, in our hearts as a living example of what humility and faith looks like in a human being. And we talked a lot about that this weekend as well. And as we see in Scripture from time to time, Paul had to boast in response to some of the Corinthians' fleshly ideas that they had received from some false apostles. Go to 2 Corinthians 12.1. There were times where this exceptionally humble faithful servant, this steward of grace even, which is a magnanimous calling, a magnanimous calling, that this man had to, quote, boast, and he says it somewhat sarcastically, somewhat dismissively, in other words, to communicate with his audience who wasn't always those things. So look at the way that he fashions 2 Corinthians 12. This is Paul. Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. The context here is that the false apostles were claiming their own visions and their own revelations. And Paul had to come back and quote-unquote boast of his own. In other words, to counterweight what the context of the situation was which was false teaching and false apostles making claims. I know a man, and it sounds uh, odd, but he's talking about himself. I know a man himself in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. That's God's abode, as we've studied out in the past of the three. And I know how such a man 
whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast. I hope you see what he's saying. He's saying, in that thing, yes, I will boast. But it's not about me, is what he's saying. He's like, I'm going to come at you with some strength here, and it's only superior because of who and what I am in Christ. So in that sense, I'm boasting in Christ when I boast of these things that He's done in me. But I'm not boasting about me. So get that straight. In other words, He's saying what I often say, get your eyes off of the man and think about the mission that He had, the ministry that He had. But you know how that goes. People like to focus on the man. So on behalf of such a man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. Now we have the introduction, if you would, of grace orientation. Grace orientation. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason... To keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And the weakness that he's talking about here, of course, relates directly to humility. A humble person realizes how pathetically weak they are in their flesh. So that thing gets out of the way, and then true strength, grace, can be perfected, if you would, that power. So my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Again, the point that precipitated this reading is on the board that grace precedes fruit. Paul recalls what... Jesus said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness, in humility, in other words. And so grace precedes fruit. So that was his deliverance. I've taught you this many times in the past. Sometimes deliverance in the moment doesn't mean... This came up as well. I hate to keep bringing it up. The lady's like, okay, enough with the conference already. It's just what's fresh, okay? We did a lot of talking, you know? Deliverance from a situation doesn't mean that he's going to answer a prayer even, specifically. He may say no. He may say, I need you to change your perspective. I need you to stop praying to me about this thing and asking for this particular thing, and I need you to change perspective. And remember that my grace is sufficient for you. So if something's hurting you to the point where you feel oppressed even, or crippled, or unable, or unqualified, He's not wrong, you're wrong. 
you're awry somehow. You're asking or you're looking at the wrong things. So God will always afford a believer the appropriate grace to accomplish a command. This means that every command in the Bible is placed upon man in the presence and sufficiency of grace. As a principle regarding 2 Corinthians 12, 1-10, we may conclude Paul's heart then as being grace-oriented. That's what you see when you read 2 Corinthians 12, 1-10. You see grace orientation come alive in an individual that had, let's just say it, probably, I'm not going to go, I'm just going to go out and live, probably more pressure than most of us will ever have on us. Certainly in the ministerial sense. Immense amount of pressure on this individual. Constantly being attacked, constantly being undermined, constantly being challenged, constantly, constantly, constantly fighting the good fight. He's also the same person who said, I have fought the good fight. I finished the course. I kept the faith. Same guy. How does that, how does that work? Because he realized what he said. God's grace is sufficient. And power is perfected in weakness. And what does he say? He says, this isn't even, the, only reason, the only way I'm able to take on this commission and not implode is to do it by grace. So on that note, after reading 2 Corinthians 12, 1-10, we might say this, relative to grace orientation, Paul understood that power is perfected in weakness to the degree that he persistently fulfilled his mission in the face of obscene adversity, even from those in his own flock. Again, this is part of grace orientation. If Paul wasn't grace-oriented, he may have chosen different words or a different approach to these individuals. But he would say things like that. Okay, I don't really want to boast in what I've been through or what I've seen, but you guys are leaving me no choice. And you're going to want to say, oh, you're just boasting about Paul. And he's going to say, no, I'm not. I'm trying to make a point here. I'm trying to deliver you from those people, from that errant theology over there. I'm trying to deliver you. And let me tell you something. It's like delivering a baby because it's painful as hell doing this thing for you all day in and day out. But he did it. How? Because he was grace-oriented. And then we can all apply that to our own lives. might say, well, I'm never going to have Paul's commission. And no, you won't. You're not going to be the, quote, steward of grace. Totally different time. But you have your own mission. Apply the, the principles to your own life then. Paul understood, as should you, power is perfected in weakness to the degree that he persistently fulfilled his mission in the face of obscene adversity even from those in his own flock. Some would rightly add that Paul was a man of great courage. And Scripture certainly would support this. As I've taught you from this pulpit many times now, on that note, because grace orientation and courage, they're almost synonyms. They're in the same family. If you were to put a, you know, a box of, quote, doctrines or like words from the Bible in a box, Grace and courage and faith would all be in the same box. And so would love. Up here on the board. Courage is really just another name 
for faith applied. So if you've ever wondered or marveled even at an individual's courage, I think of David all the time, I think of Gideon, um, Paul, obviously. If you've ever marveled at someone's courage, ask yourself, why do they have it? Why do they have that courage? Because they have faith. Courage is really just another name for faith applied. Faith is a grace gift given to the humble. So the humble then have courage. So while Paul appeared, quote, boastful to his flock, he was actually exceedingly humble comparatively. So in other words, the most humble guy is the one that's being accused of boasting. The most humble guy is the one who's correcting people. The most humble guy is the one who keeps having to answer to the Spirit's encouragement to share about his own life when he really doesn't feel like it necessarily for the benefit of the flock. But that's what courage and humility look like. That's what grace orientation looks like. Who said, who's to say that Paul wanted that commission? Who's to say that he liked being smacked down necessarily and been given this huge commission? We know he took it on. We know his vigor, etc., etc. But who's to say what his own personality was? I mean, is anybody in here revel necessarily day in and day out about being attacked? Anybody, anybody, anybody try to kill you lately? They tried to kill Paul all the time. Some of them from within the church. As a result, he pressed on under all circumstances. So we have a good picture of a man with courage, with grace orientation, because he was humble and he had faith, and he pressed on under all circumstances. What he realized throughout his ministry, and this is something attainable by all of us, since we all have a ministry to our account, what he realized is that perseverance in the face of adversity produced something phenomenal in him, something supernaturally strong. In other words, men in this position have to be trained. Women in their calling have to be trained. That's why the Bible says, older women, train, teach the younger women about what it is. That's why we have a woman's Bible study now. Teach the younger women. What, is it, what does it mean to be a woman? What is, it, what is it like to know Christ that intimately as a woman? What is it like to know Him and love Him that way and then love your spouse as a result of that being in you first? What does that look like? I mean, if I was to ask that at the mall right now, most of the girls would be like, what? Say what? Get out of my way. I'm shopping. Oh, I just, I just ran you over. Hey, the blue light special's on you. Stopping me with this Jesus freak stuff. They wouldn't have a clue as to what I'm talking about. So these are supernatural things, supernatural bonds even, that occur inside of an individual's soul in, in certain circumstances, depending on the nature of your personal ministry, and I can relate to Paul specifically because of my ministry, certain bonds are not always bi-directional. 
In other words, the humble, mature person is bound to others, but they are not bound to that person. Think of Jesus. Think of Jesus. Came to his own. They didn't want him. They, they killed him. Think of Paul. So there are supernatural bonds that form for the benefit of the individual, but they're not always reciprocated. Go to Romans 5.3. So in the face of adversity, something phenomenal develops in an individual, and that's our example in Paul, that you have supernaturally strong bonds that form in your own soul that bond you to others. What's the greatest expression of love? What is the greatest thing to lay down our lives for others? Does it say, in light of the fact that they first laid down their life for us? No. It says the great, quote, bond, to use my language this morning, the great bond of love to, between you and them, your motivation even to serve them when they might even be spitting venom at you out of love is because of a bond that was formed supernaturally in you to them. And that's what we see with Paul. Romans 5.3 And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So you see that perseverance produces fruit in a believer. This is what Scripture tells us, that perseverance produces fruit in a believer. I don't care what you're going to say, but this came up as well, so there. How do you do it? How do you be a man today? Seriously. Persevere. How do you see certain fruit in your own life? Persevere. You don't know what's tomorrow. You have no idea. You can have the best laid plans ever. And God might go, nope. And they're gone. Guy, my next door neighbor yesterday, fell off a ladder, second story, on his head. Two fractured vertebrae. I got to go running over there. His poor daughter, who's in high school, is hysterical. I'm sure he had plans for today. And he's in Rhode Island Hospital with Frank. I don't know what, and he's a Christian. I don't know what God did that for, allowed that to happen. Why? But um, I want him to persevere, and that's what I've been praying for. I want him and his family to persevere. So perseverance produces fruit in a believer. This is what Scripture tells us. This is, as we've been calling out, plainly stated theology. That is plainly stated theology, that perseverance produces fruit in a believer. So that means we can trust it with every fiber of who we are. That if we just persevere, if we just push through, even if it's obscene adversity, even if it's totally unfair, nobody else gets it. 
push through. If we're practical in our pondering this topic, we understand that perseverance in the face of adversity might be called courage, which is really just another word for faith applied. And as 1 Peter 1.7 states regarding the proof of our faith, when we find the courage within us, the faith, we are, for lack of a better term, in courage, in the sphere of courage. When we find courage within us, when we find faith, we are in courage or encouraged. Go to Romans 15.5. Romans 15.5. Because that is the etymology of the word encouraged. It means encouraged. And so sometimes the very best thing we can do as men and women is persevere. <laughs> Literally. Persevere. But why? Stop asking why. Just press on. You're not meant to know everything. So press on. Romans 15, 5. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement. Same guy, writing. Close of the great Roman epistle. Perseverance and encouragement grants you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with one accord you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. So all of that focus on grace orientation is to support the trio of principles the Spirit gave us prior. Up here on the board, this is how they went. First, grace precedes fruit. God will always afford a believer the appropriate grace to accomplish any command. This means that every command in the Bible is placed upon man in the presence and sufficiency of grace. We just read that. My grace is sufficient for you. 2 Corinthians 12.9 More on grace orientation. Paul understood that power is perfected in weakness to the degree that he persistently fulfilled his mission in the face of obscene adversity, even from those in his own flock, even from those that were technically closest to him. Why? That's what a leader has to do. Persevere in the face of obscene adversity. And then finally, courage. How do you do that thing? You have courage. And what is courage but applied faith? Think about Paul without courage. What would he have done? He would have cowered every time his flock said, no, we're not hearing that. We don't like that. We like what these guys over here have to say. Imagine Paul the coward. Seriously, what would that do to the New Testament? What would that do to the very steward of grace? Imagine Paul a coward. Is that a beautiful thing? Or is that an ugly thing? Which guy do you want to follow? A coward? Or a guy like Paul? Which one do you want? You want a coward or do you want a warrior? Which one do you want? Because I'll tell you what, right now, there's an awful lot of cowards out there. 
And an awful lot of people, because of the perversion of this world, the pathetic nature of manhood even in this world, prefer a coward. Wouldn't like Paul the moment they met him because he wouldn't apologize for who and what he was. Jesus didn't either. And they strung him up on a cross. Courage is really just another name for applied faith. Faith is a grace gift given to the humble. So, while Paul appeared boastful to his flock, he was actually exceedingly humble, comparatively. As a result of Paul's humility, faith, and grace orientation, things that undoubtedly produced courage in him, he pressed on under all circumstances. Isn't that what you want? Honestly? Isn't that what you want in your own life? Don't you want that kind of courage? Don't you want that kind of conviction? Don't you want those things for yourself? Isn't the Holy Spirit saying, yes, you do, right now, to you? Yes, you want those things? Because Jesus Christ, our prototype, possessed them impeccably. And what's the nature of our sanctification? To be sanctified, to be set apart, to be like Him. So as a result of Paul's humility, faith, and grace orientation, things that undoubtedly produced courage in him, he pressed on under all circumstances. And just to drive this home, this is the living by faith in Romans 1.17 that we've been studying. There's no other way. Something that kept coming up, yes, again, was real men do. They live. They're not merely hearers who delude themselves. They're not men who look in the mirror and go, oh, that looks like crap. Ooh, better change that and then walk away and forget the whole scene. Real women do. Don't believe me? Read Proverbs 31. There's an active woman for you. There's a woman who gets it done. There's a woman who stands out like a sore thumb. Imagine a Proverbs 30. I know some. I'm not going to point them out. Um, And many of you are on your way, which is beautiful to see. But that's not my call. But imagine a Proverbs 31 woman right now in a local gathering of teens or 20-something-year-old women. And imagine if she started speaking humbly about her Lord and Savior. What do you think the response would be? Yet here she is, the living manifestation of living by faith, and the world is going to go for the jugular, is going to be sickened by someone beautiful. That's how everything's backwards. The world says, oh, oh, look at you. Don't you have you ever seen the word feminism? Oh, you make me sick, woman. So servant-like. Get in the 21st century, lady. Get with the program. Same thing with men. You know what we learned as a statistic? 
Men ages 18 to 24 think very little of the word masculinity. Young men think worse of the word masculinity than young women of the same age group. How's that work? Dwell on that for a little while. So when you think about Paul and humility and faith and grace orientation, things that produced divinely ordained courage in him to press on in all kinds of adversity, think about living by faith. Think about his example. That's why it's in the Bible. He's an example to us. So if you want to look at, instead of just reading living by faith and waxing poetic and saying, oh, well, this is wonderful. I wonder what God's going to do. Look at the examples in the Bible. This is the living by faith in Romans 1.17 that we have been studying out as experiential sanctification for months now. And the practical result, at least for someone called out as a shepherd, is fruit in the flock itself. Go to Philippians 4.1. I want to show you something. So for someone like Paul, you might say, God, didn't he ever get sick of doing that thing? They seemed like ungrateful jerks. And they were. And they challenged him. His authority, always, consistently. Why? They didn't have the bond that he had. It was a one-way relationship. So as far as a shepherd is concerned, one of the practical results of sanctification is fruit in the flock itself. In other words, a corporate sanctification. Being able to look at the flock and say, now that is lovely. Like I see when I see all of you. Everybody in here has grown. Even the brand new people have grown in magnificent ways. And what does Paul say? Therefore, in Philippians 4.1, Therefore, my beloved brethren whom I long to see, what does he call them? My joy and my crown. In other words, you are my reward. You are the thing that keeps me going in the morning. You are the objective. I'm not the objective. I'm not boasting for me. I'd rather walk away sometimes. Get it? It's not about me. I'm not boasting for my purposes, so cut it out. I'm doing all this uncomfortable stuff out of love because you're my joy and my crown. That's what he said. In this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I mean, does it get any more intimate than that? No, not between this kind of a relationship, not between shepherd and sheep. What Paul is saying is that he persevered for a purpose, his flock. He went through all that he did for others. And he actually equated it to giving birth. <laughs> and what do you, what's, how do you say it in the hospital? She what at 12.35 a.m.? She delivered. So you go through all these birth pangs, all this pain of deliverance, or of, of uh, labor, right? To what? 
to deliver the child. And look at Paul actually uses the Greek word for childbirth in context. Galatians 4.19, My children, with whom I am again in labor. If you know anything about the Galatians, who bewitched you? Always listening to the Judaizers, getting back to legalism, challenging Paul over and over. My children, with whom I am again in labor. The original language calls out to suffer childbirth pains until Christ is formed in you. Do you see Paul's heart right there? What is he saying? He's like, this is like delivering a baby and I'm a guy. This is horrible. You people, this is the worst labor ever. But you're my joy and my crown. So I will go through it and I will persevere. And I will fight that good fight, whether or not you appreciate me, whether or not you get it or not, is not the point. Because I answer to the Lord. Whether we even want that bond from me to you is not the issue. Because it's there. And Paul says, you know, if I love you more, am I to be loved yet less? Yep. Yep. Most, many of you can relate to that. Paul persevered under immense pressure for the same reason Jesus did for others, even when those same people forsook him personally. My children with whom I am again in labor to suffer childbirth pains until Christ is formed in you, Paul persevered under immense pressure for the same reason Jesus did for others, even when those same people forsook him personally. This is the hallmark of a true soldier for Christ. They persist under pressure. Maybe not always, we all falter, but overall. Some of this is called out as the doctrine of the persevering saint. However, since that phrase doesn't occur in Holy Scripture, it's not necessary or necessarily important that you memorize it. You don't have to remember, oh, that's the doctrine of the persevering saint. I don't care. That's actually not in Scripture. So I don't care. I care that you understand. I care that you get it. That perseverance actually has a result. That just sticking with it actually has a result. If you don't believe it in your own life, read the Word of God and look what happened to Paul. He gets knocked down one day and the next thing he's on his way. Fighting all kinds of crazy wars. He probably never thought he'd fight. But there you have it. I mean, who's this about anyways, right? And by the way, Paul and Peter were certainly not the only folks to write about perseverance and testing of faith. James, Jesus' brother, also wrote clearly on the subject. Go to James 1, verse 2. James 1, verse 2. So this is not a novel. I mean, it's not something that was unique to Paul. It's just for whatever reason, God the Holy Spirit inspired a lot of writing from him. Seems like a good example to me. I mean, but Peter, Paul... James wrote the same stuff. James 1, 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing... Anybody want to take a guess at what Greek word that is? The testing of your faith, dokimion, 
Same Greek word as 1 Peter 1.7, the proof of your faith. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. What did Peter say in 1 Peter 1.7? What is produced? The proof of your faith is the product, right? That proof, that dokimion, produces something that's more valuable than all the gold in the land. Who wouldn't pay dearly for endurance? Honestly. Do you want another $100 in your pocket? Or do you, want to be able, do you want to be able to bear the next day or the next week? Now, if you said 100 bucks, you got problems. Just saying. Do I just have to go like a month? All right, maybe for a month. Everybody's like, hmm, I don't know. How long could I go for 100 bucks? Right? Give me 1000 and I'll, we'll talk about a week. But you get the point. Testing produces something. The testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know, like Jesus was. I mean, that's the end goal, to form in you Christ himself, to be like him. That's what sanctification is. So you're going to be tested, but it has good fruit. And that's what James was writing about. Here's what we've learned this past week and what has been amplified this morning. Again, I just mentioned it, the proof of your faith from 1 Peter 1.7. It requires testing. By fire in context in 1 Peter, what is faith untested? Why test it? Why not just say, I got it? Because untested faith is what? Void of proof. The Bible says it has to be tested. It literally has to go into the crucible, right? It has to go into the fire so that it can come out and you go, oh my God, this is like gold. No kidding. When I test you, you're going to come out a shinier gold. All that slag, remember the slag example I gave you? All the garbage is going to bubble out and we're going to scrape it off. You're going to go in. Morning like this morning is not too bad, right? Some mornings not so good. Really hot. Right? You're going to go in the furnace, you're going to turn up the heat, and you're going to take a certain amount of slag off. And you're going to say, all right, go cool down. You're not perfect yet. You're still, you know, you're gold, but you have other, you know, you're still an alloy, let's say. You still have other metals in you, some imperfections, some dirt, whatever. But we'll get back to it. And that's what he does. And he comes back as a lump, and he says, let's put you back in the fire. Let me put you under some pressure, and let's see what happens. Let's remove some of that slag. And that's what he says. The proof of your faith, dokimion, produces, as uh, James just said, endurance. Paul says, in general, it produces things that are worth way more than gold. So it requires, proof of your faith requires testing by fire. What is faith untested? Faith reveals its value when it's tested. And then, of course, we add other scripture, Hebrews eleven six, part A, and without faith it is impossible to please him. Luke recorded a time in the Apostle Peter's life where his faith was tested, and Jesus captured that moment to teach him and those watching a good lesson about what we are now learning a couple of thousand years later. Go figure. As Solomon says, nothing new under the sun. Here's the context again of Luke 5, 1 to 11. The fishermen had given up catching fish, Jesus got into the boat with a crowd watching him. Jesus performed a miracle by faith. Peter is stricken with shame in the God-man's presence. 
Go to Luke 5.1. I'm going to go quickly because this is review. Luke 5.1. So we're reading Peter's account to see, to learn about, before he even wrote, a long time before he wrote 1 Peter 1.7, this happened. At the very beginning of his own personal conversion, his own personal ministry, this happened. And it was profound. And it changed him. Luke 5.1. And then he persevered. Yes, he's the same guy. The cock struck, crowed three times and he denied Jesus, right? That type of thing. I denied him three times and the cock crowed, right? Same guy, which means he wasn't perfect. But nonetheless, this was inserted very early on in his career, let's say. Luke 5.1. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him, And listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Genesaret. And when he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets, and he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, that's Peter, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. Okay, so there's some humility right there, even early on. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. And so they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them, and they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, He fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to uh, Simon, Do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Peter's faith was tested, and it resulted in real fruit for him and others, presumably. There were other people watching. Although Peter's reaction is the one that's recorded. He says, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And then he left everything and followed him. Which brings up the following basic principle from Thursday. This has everything to do with grace orientation, humility, etc. Faith. If we truly fear God, we are overwhelmed by our own sinfulness. This is the precursor to repentance that leads to salvation. Nowhere in Scripture is it suggested that believers lose this sense of fear and repentance. So this profound event in Peter's life certainly was there forever. Certainly was part of the motivation the impetus behind writing 1 Peter 1.7, the proof of your faith. Same guy, just early in his career. Romans 1.18-32 reveals what lack of fear or respect for God looks like, and that is the cause for a lack of repentance. The reason we looked at Luke 5 was that it was an account in Peter's life that contributed to the same man who years later wrote about the proof of faith being more valuable than worldly gold. 
Think about it. You think he ever forgot dropping everything and following Jesus? Do you think he ever forgot? Do you think that wasn't part of the constitution of the man himself who wrote 1 Peter 1.7? He's like basically saying, trust me on this one. I dropped everything. And so he so proved to me that when I did that and I continued to do it and I persevered, that what I got in exchange was more valuable than any amount of fish. I could have been drawing that many fish and buying ingots of gold for the rest of my life, and it wouldn't have made any, it wouldn't even have compared to what I got by following him. That's the proof of faith. Same guy. Peter had faith, and the proof of that faith is worth much more than anything he hauled into the boat that day. His faith was increased, as were others, and afterwards he left everything and followed Jesus. So synthesizing, we arrived at this, Luke 5, 1-11 and 1 Peter 1, 7. Jesus never stopped strengthening the faith of his disciples. Likewise, he never stopped strengthening our faith in time. Faith does the job of overcoming our fears, the fruit of the flesh, so that our inherent desire to obey, fruit of the new creature, may perform unrestrictedly in and through us. And oh, by the way, the Spirit is our helper in this. Just read John 14 and you'll see that. In other words, the Spirit's going to say, this is the way it's supposed to be. And every time you notice another step, let's say, in your sanctification, the Spirit's going to be right there saying, isn't this awesome? You weren't that way yesterday. But here we are, another step down the road, persevering. An additional principle worth reiterating, also from Thursday, is expounding on 1 Peter 1.7. Among the greatest fruit, and this is not a sidebar, it's related, but among the greatest fruit for a true believer is their eternal security. John 18.9 says, I lost not one. That sense of security, knowing that you've been saved, is among the most basic fruit in your soul. And it is fruit, because it is a gift given by God to you, and it has become part of who you are. For example, the new creature is assured of its destiny and the Spirit confirms it. 1 John 3.24 and 4.13. So all of this evidence of faith, grace, and sanctification, I know, I realize it. It's not the evidence itself. The scriptures we've gone to, most of you have been to those scriptures more times than maybe you could count. I don't know. Probably lots of times. So the scripture itself is not new to most of you. I realize that and Obviously, the Spirit does. But for whatever reasons exist, we tend to lose sight of the fullness of God's grace in our lives. And the result, as Scripture depicts, is actually predictable. If, In other words, if you're grace-oriented, then guess what? You walk by faith, 2 Corinthians 5-7, in a manner worthy of your calling, Ephesians 4.1, and a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, Philippians 1.27. So as we continue to consider our progressive sanctification in time, may we discern the difference even. May we learn what it means to know something and live it, being two different things. There are those who actually walk by faith and those who have an incomplete, let's call it, faith that says that walking by faith is the right way to walk. However, it's one thing to mentally assent to something. It's another to live it. 
the righteous man shall live by faith. Romans 1.17 The question on most people's mind then, when they read Romans 1.17 is, well, what does it actually mean? What does it mean? Ask yourselves right now, what does it mean? Take a, take a sip of water. What does it mean to you to live by faith? What does it mean? I'm not going to tell you. That's certainly not my business. I can tell you what Scripture says. I can tell you what theology looks like on the topic, but that's as far as I'm going to go. I've got my own salvation to work out with fear and trembling. So what does it mean to you, though, to live by faith? Are you still religious? Well, that means I've got to take another two commands from the Bible and add them to my little list on the wall, my corkboard, and then when I get ready in the morning, grab my keys, I go, oh, okay, now I've got to do this thing. Okay, today I'm going to do this thing. Or is it something totally different? Only you can answer that. What does it mean to live by faith? This was something that came up several times in the men's conference. Imagine that. We must have talked a lot. Guys, did we talk a lot at the men's conference? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Where men are called out to live by faith, specifically as leaders in our families. Leaders. Well, then what does it mean to live by faith as a leader? Because there's a context, right? Life has context. Okay, great. Live by faith. Hoorah! Let's go drink some beer. No. Live by faith as a leader. For example, in a family. Let's say. What does that mean? And if you're not married and you don't have any kids, well, then think about your parents. Or think about your nieces and nephews. Or someone else like that. Family is an infrastructure, an institution that we all have experience with. And it's not a matter of, oh, well, I have this role and that role. No. What say you of living by faith in a family, regardless if you're the father, the son, the mother, the daughter? Regardless. What say you of living by faith in a family? What does God have to say about the family? Is it important? Is it important to you? So there are real questions. What does it mean to live by faith as leaders in our families? And that kept coming up in, in the resounding response was and has been in our own studies here from the pulpit that your life has context. That my calling is different than yours. How I live and how I lead, that's unique to my person, even. This is one of the underlying reasons for our studying out the parables in the way that we have been. And some may have first, or at first, mistaken the reason for our doing so. But hopefully, in retrospect, you realize more so why. I mean, why is he picking on the parables all of a sudden? One of the underlying reasons is to emphasize the importance of the context in life in general. The importance of context. And that even the Bible, the Holy Scriptures, have context. And in the absence of that context lies the realm of errant theology. Theology that is plagued 
by speculation. Parables, in many ways, are the most contextually sensitive passages in all of Scripture. Here are our principles from that good labor. Again, life has context. Without context, parables are especially susceptible to interpretation errors. For example, does you will know them by their fruit? Matthew 7.20 mean that we are able to discern everyone's salvation by merely looking at their outward fruit? A resounding no. You've got to have the context. Again, life has context. Therefore, parables too. For they were conveying or conveyed during a very different time. Therefore, for us, imposing contemporary culture upon a parable will inevitably result in errant conclusions. Speculation is always bad when it is taken as theology. If you don't get it, you've missed it. If it's not plainly apparent, do not take it upon yourself to construct something that isn't there. Now, to help drive this point home, I gave you some information about myself even, and I'm with Paul. I don't know how Paul was, but it seems like he wasn't all that keen on always sharing, but he did anyways. He was very guarded about it because he knew man's heart. Oh, here we go again. Oh, high and mighty Paul. <laughs> right? So he's, very, so he's very guarded about sharing, as am I. Why? Because it, no matter what I share, oh, oh, here we go. Oh, I guess you think green's the best color now. Seriously? Might be surprised. All right, so I said, all right, I like the color green. I painted my office green. Okay. Now, speculation. Do you have the right to say that since I like green, that I must also like blue and yellow simply because green is their derivative? No, you don't. But a sophomore, a wise moron, will do just that. They will speculate that they know more than they do. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Romans 12, 16. Some people simply aren't satisfied with what they are given, so they speculate, sometimes egregiously. And the more they do that, the further from the truth about someone or something they get. But yet, in Romans 1, we see the epitome of speculation with the sinners who spiral downwards, unbelievers who spiral out of control, reject God, fill in the blanks with speculation. That's the ultimate prototype for the flesh's good work. Well, you still have a flesh, and it still likes to, to speculate, like, a lot. It would actually rather speculate, because then it can be independent of God and speculate whatever it wants about you or anybody else. Well, let me tell you about Pastor Red. He likes green. He likes frogs. Seriously? Just take it out. Trust me. I know the theology behind the color wheel. He likes blue things and he likes yellow things. Just take it from me. Oh, I'm so wise. It's incredible what people do to one another in moments of speculation. Now, regarding parables, getting back there, avoiding speculation errors, all that was just to drive a point home. The parables haven't changed in 2,000 years. However, our culture and our, quote, life context have changed dramatically. 
Therefore, in order to find the meaning of a parable, we must avoid imposing contemporary ideologies on them in favor of understanding the context in which they were written, time, place, person, culture, etc. In other words, if you really want to get the most out of reading your Bible, especially the parables, since they are very contextually sensitive, you should get to know, well, what's going on? Even if you have a good study Bible, a good study Bible will have something at the beginning of the book itself that you can read and say, well, here's the background, here's the audience, here's the time frame, here's what Paul was doing, here's what Jesus was saying, you know, whatever, whatever you're studying. Do that at least, something. And to help you now, for those of you who are true nerds, here's a book for you. The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah by Alfred Edersheim. Very slow. Very slow. But this, so, it's just jam-packed. And it's just wonderfully done. And he just speaks like a historian on the subject. It's really the history of Jesus and the culture he lived in and the people that he was surrounded by and the politics and all that kind of stuff. It's wonderful. In the midst of Jesus' life context, we find the following conversation between Jesus and his disciples. And, of course, this is the precursor to him giving them the parable of parables, the parable of the sower. Go to Matthew 13, 10. I'll go quickly. We've already read it. Then I'm going to close with one other passage, show you a video, and then you can be off on your way. You can be off and be grace-oriented now. Go run off and be grace-oriented. Right? People are like, that's not what I had in, in mind. I was thinking inebriated. I was thinking dissipation, but not grace orientation. I was thinking drink orientation. Matthew 13, 10. And the disciples, the so-called uneducated, remember, came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, the intellects, it has not been granted. Whoever has to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they do not see, and while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Jesus and his apostles despised the arrogant intellectuals. Despise them. Nothing wrong with being intelligent. But if you're arrogant intelligent, if you're an arrogant intellectual like these people were, Jesus and his apostles would despise you too. So they spoke and wrote about this problem often. This was a good portion of the context of their lives and therefore their personal ministries as they set out to either affirm or defend the gospel. I want to read one more passage in closing. It's with Paul. Go to 1 Corinthians 1.18. I'm just going to read it. Again, this is the same individual that we started off with this morning. The one who's a wonderful example of grace orientation, of humility, of perseverance of fighting the good fight. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. 
For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed Jews asked for signs and Greeks searched for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen? All right, want to get the lights, guys?
Father, thank You again for this morning's message, for always giving even when we refuse to accept it and often fail to give to others in turn. We thank You for making each of us unique and for making days like today special days in which we are able to recognize such things. Thank you especially for the goings-on at the men's conference and for providing each of the attendees with a safe return home. We are so very grateful and thankful, Father, that you have chosen each of us personally to be exactly who we are in the body of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray especially for all the veterans on this Memorial Day as it was your divine providence that used them as instruments for your good purposes. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.